Good morning. Uh, for those of you I've not met, my name is Rob Conley, and I bring you greetings from the Uptown Church Martinsville family this morning. Um, our local church family now includes persons with three last names, <laughs> the Conleys and the Hollands, uh, who were sent from North Wake Church in Wake Forest, and Courtney DeShazo, a high school classmate of mine who, after several meetings discussing the gospel, uh, surrendered his life to Jesus, receiving him as Lord and Savior a week ago this past Friday. So we give God great glory and praise for his work in Courtney's life and in our own. Um, and we are truly grateful to this church family, the, the, the church family that is Rockfish Valley Baptist Church, uh, who's invested, you guys have invested much prayer and financial resource and care and concern into the work that, that is becoming Uptown Church Martinsville. So your partnership has facilitated us actually being in Martinsville so that I can go to Hardy's once a week and have a cheeseburger with Courtney and, and sit there and, 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 and talk with him about who Jesus says that we are as human beings and what the purpose of life is. And as, the, and as we're sitting there, not three weeks ago, uh, a man walks in who had just gotten out of jail with Courtney two nights before. Now think about what I just said. He and Courtney were both in jail together two nights before. And he says, this is that gospel guy you were telling me about to Courtney. No, no big pressure on me, right? And so I began to share the gospel just from Ephesians chapter 2. And before I know it, there's 12 people sitting around us in the middle of Hardee's, in the middle of the lunch hour, people that have different uh, complexion, different color to their skin, different life experiences, but the people that are Martinsville. Gathering in the middle of Hardee's at 1240 on a Wednesday afternoon because God is at work. And you guys have a part in that. So we are grateful to God for you, for your partnership um, and your, your friendship and your fellowship in what we are doing. Um, so that people who are dead in their sin can be made alive in Christ just as we have. So our goal this morning in studying God's Word is the same as it always is. Our goal is to be able to understand it rightly and then to be transformed by it. So, will you stand with me? We're going to read the passage for today. Before we do that, I'm going to pray and ask God to help us through the power of His Holy Spirit to understand His Word correctly and be transformed by it. God, we thank You for You. We thank You that You are and that You love us well beyond our ability to understand. You have given us value and worth that we struggle to see in ourselves. God, and you've shown that through your willingness to come in the form of your own creation and die to make us alive who were once dead in our sins. So Lord, as we study your word this morning, we pray that you would grant us the grace of your Holy Spirit, that he would give us clarity of mind that we would be able to understand and God, that He, that You would change us through the understanding of Your Word. We pray this in Your name. Amen. Stay standing if you will. Our, our passage 
this morning is continuing along in your series in Mark, and it's chapter 12, verses 28 through 34. I'm going to read it for us right now. Then one of the scribes came, and having heard them reasoning together, perceived that he had answered them well, and asked, which is the first commandment of all? And Jesus answered him, the first of all the commandments is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. This is the first commandment. And the second, like it, is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment that is greater than these. So the scribe said to him, Well said, teacher, you have spoken the truth. For there is one God, and there is no other but he. And to love him with all the heart, all the understanding, with all the soul and with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself is more than all the whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. Now when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. But after that, no one dared question him. You can be seated. Here in Mark 12, 28 through 34, we have the third of three tests. And you guys have been studying the first two already that are presented to Jesus by the religious authorities after his entrance into Jerusalem. And these tests are all given with the goal of causing Jesus to show himself to be heretical so that they could destroy him. In the case of our passage today, one of the religious rulers, a scribe, asked Jesus to tell him which is the greatest commandment of all. In order to more fully understand what's happening here, a little bit of background is helpful, and some of this will be review for you, given that you've been studying these other tests, okay? So the religious authorities of that time had over 600 commandments. And you know this, many of which were mostly just additions to or fences around the law that God had actually given. Additionally, the supreme test of any rabbi or teacher of that day was the ability to summarize all of these 600-plus commandments into one supreme commandment. Okay? So this question, which is the first commandment of all, is a kind of comprehensive exam in the mind of religious authorities. They're basically saying, okay, Jesus, what's the bottom line of what you believe? In other words, just to kind of bring this in focus for us here this morning, The Lord Jesus Christ, King, Creator, Savior, Redeemer, Restorer of all things, second member of the Trinity, is about to articulate the answer to the single most important question in human existence and experience. This is the question that every human is built to answer with their lives. It's the question that every philosophy and every one of the world's religions is striving to answer. And that question is, what is the meaning of life? Jesus quotes as his answer the very Hebrew Torah scripture that the scribes claim to understand so well and yet misunderstood so clearly. His answer is huge for us sitting here in this beautiful valley here this morning. Rockfish Valley, Virginia, United States of America in 2015. This answer helps us to see vividly that all of Scripture is one narrative. 
that our personal stories, our stories, our lives, just like the life of our new brother Courtney in Martinsville, they only make sense as part of God's story. I'll say that again. Our lives only make sense as part of God's story. Our stories are part of God's story. Jesus is the answer. Jesus' answer is the answer to everything. So, his answer, the answer to the question, what is the meaning of life, is quite simply, God. Now, that may sound a lot like a Sunday school answer that you're used to. That was certainly the best answer I knew growing up in Sunday school. Pretty much, if you answered God, you were going to get it right. And everyone was going to have to agree with you. Right? But let's, let's dig in here. Let's read verses 29 and 30. Jesus answered him, The first of all the commandments is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. This is the Shema, which in our Christian Bible is Deuteronomy 6, 4, and 5. So if you're curious, you can look there. Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 and 5. Jesus is directly quoting that, that very passage in our Christian in Bible. And there's a reason for that. All the Jewish people then and today know the Shema. In fact, they're required to say it every day as a declaration of their faith in God. If you've ever seen a movie where uh, a Jewish synagogue worship time is focused on or shown or depicted... Almost always, uh, the person at the platform is reading the Shema, is reciting the Shema, or singing the Shema. Okay? I would do it for you, but I, it's not going to be pretty if I do that. The actual Hebrew version. But you can Google that too, and it's very stirring. Okay? I want us to pause here and let the gravity of this whole answer of Jesus settle in our hearts for a moment. First of all, Jesus is not making this up. This is not something new. Oh, I'm going to come out with this answer, and it's just never been heard before. There's no evidence of it in the earth before. That's not what's happening. In fact, this truth is presented in the very first line of the Bible. And it is sung throughout the entire story of the Scripture until the very end. So to prove that, just to explore this together, let's turn together to Genesis. Bear with me, we're going to do a little bit of turning for the next little bit. Turn with me to Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. All right, you probably didn't need to turn to read that one. But maybe it's helpful if we read it silently. I know this is a bit different for a sermon. Let's take 30 seconds and let's read that first verse of the Bible as many times as you can cram in in 30 seconds. Ready, set, go. Okay, 
Who remembers getting a yearbook in school? Anybody get a yearbook at some point along the way? So what's the first thing you do when you get your yearbook? You turn to the index and find the pages that you're on. Right? This is what we tend to do with the Bible, right? We, we treat the Bible as basically a story about us. I want to find out what the Bible has to say about me. Now, often that's in the form of what I'm going through right now or some struggle that a friend is having, what have you. But the very first verse of the Bible tells us that's wrong. Who is the main character? Who is the subject of that first sentence in the Bible? God. In the beginning, God. It doesn't even say, in the beginning, people. In the beginning, humans. In the beginning, the earth. In the beginning, animals. In the beginning, no, in the beginning, God. God is the subject. God is the main character of the Bible. So what you have here is a lens, okay? For those of you that wear eyeglasses, you see the world through those lenses, okay? The way that we read Scripture is like a lens. If we read Scripture through the lens of yearbook theology, we're never going to understand it correctly. We're simply not. And yet that's all of our temptation. And that doesn't mean you don't run to Scripture in your struggles. Don't hear me say that. But the bigger picture way of understanding the Scripture is through the lens of in the beginning God. Okay? So, if we're going to move forward a bit here, we know, we, we've established that God is the main character of the entire Bible. Let's, let's flip forward to verse 26 in the same book, Genesis, and we'll read 26 and 27. At this point, God has created everything except for man. And by the way, a couple of little side notes. He says along the way that everything is good, everything is good, everything is good. And he gets to 26, and here we go. God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Never before in this narrative of creation has God mentioned maleness and femaleness. Never before has anything been created in God's image, even though all of creation reflects God. There's something very significant about being a human. We are image bearers. Okay? And we were made to reflect and adore God in a unique way as image bearers. But the rest of creation simply does not. Okay? We were made to worship Him. In other words, we are worshipers. That is humanness, is worshipness. From the very beginning, the who part of the meaning of life, who are we, has always been founded on the foundational truth about who God is. It's never been disconnected from that. Okay? So we see that from Genesis 1.1. We see that from Genesis 1.26 and 27. The, the, the who we are part of the meaning of life is directly founded upon who God is and who He has made us to be. Okay? 
And our last verse here in Genesis chapter 1, before we move forward, is verse 28. I'm going to read that here. Then God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Some of that is repeat from the verse before it, notice. So, let's just consider briefly that the who we are part of the meaning of life and what we're supposed to be doing part of the meaning of life are connected. We can't disconnect them. Notice the primary thing in view here is still not us. Isn't that interesting? And remember also that here in Genesis 1, sin has not entered the world. Humans were, as they were made, worshipers of God, without any sin, without any roadblock, okay? So from the very beginning, the what we do part of the meaning of life has always been based on who we are, which is based on who God is. It's all connected, okay? So if humans are worshipers and God is commanding us to fill the earth with humans, which plainly, if you read that, multiply and fill the earth, it's, it's really not complicated. It's just have babies, Fill the earth, right? And this is a God-glorifying thing that he's commanded us to do. But if we are worshipers of God without sin, which we are before sin enters the earth, then when he commands us to fill the earth, he's commanding us to fill the earth with worshipers. So before we even get through the first chapter of the Bible, we see that we exist to worship God and to fill the earth with worshipers, to Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. That ought to sound familiar. That's from our passage today. That is the Shema. That is what the Hebrew religion is based on. It's not new to Jesus' answer. It's from the very beginning who we are and what we're about in the world. And we see also here from the picture of filling the earth in verse 28 in Genesis that our purpose extends beyond ourselves from the very first second, right? Uh, it's, it's the foundational concept se- seen in the second part of Jesus' answer, which we're going to get to in just a moment. Remember also that because this is, uh, you know, before Genesis 3 and, and before sin enters the world, uh, that there's a certain what this is all about that extends throughout the entire narrative of Scripture. So if you want to look at Genesis 3, that's the point where things go wrong, okay? And the entirety of the Bible is working on uh, helping us to see God's mission to fix it, right? At the end, the theme is the same. So let's turn all the way to the end, to Revelation chapter 22, and we will see very clearly the full restoration of all things to the original intent of God. So we're going to go to Revelation chapter 22, verses 1 through 5. This is the vision given by God to the Apostle John at the very end of his life about the very end of all things. Okay? Revelation chapter 22, verses 1 through 5. And he showed me a pure river of water of life clear as crystal, proceeding from the throne of God and of the Lamb. In the middle of its street 
and on either side of the river was the tree of life, which bore twelve fruits, each tree yielding its fruit every month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations, and there shall be no more curse, but the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and His servants shall serve Him. They shall see His face, and His name shall be on their foreheads. There shall be no night there. They need no lamp nor light of the sun, for the Lord God gives them light, and they shall reign forever and ever. So just to tease this out here, at the end, God remakes the heavens and the earth together. And this is the eternal home of all of us who are in Christ Jesus. So John is describing this, and I think he's really struggling to use human words, human vocabulary, to describe the vision he's been given, you can imagine, right? But he says it's like a pure river of water of life. We, biologically speaking, are made mostly of water. Uh, Biologically speaking, water is life in a lot of ways. So we're talking about a pure river of water of life. This is the symbol, okay? We have to kind of get up in the symbolic realm here for a moment. With a single tree that is on both sides whose leaves are the healing of the nations. Remember, we're, we're talking about the healing of all things which have been broken, the restoration of that which has been marred, the redemption that leads to everything being put back the way it was intended to be. Okay. Now, does this idea of a, a tree where the leaves are the healing of the nations, does it remind you of anything else in the Bible? It makes me think about the garden. Makes me think about where there was once perfect fellowship between God and man and all of creation. Makes me think of that, doesn't doesn't it make you think of that? So in this description that John gives us from his vision, the very presence of Jesus himself is such that everyone sees his face all the time. The very presence of Jesus himself is such that everyone sees his face all the time. His light is such that there's no night. And they don't need any other source of light because He is their light. There's nothing but perfection, harmony, flourishing, worship. That's a reason to get up in the morning. This is our hope. We have four beautiful children in our home. They are wonderful, but we don't sleep. We just don't sleep. It's just a fact. There's a comedian who has a really funny bit, and he says, we don't say goodnight anymore, we say good luck. (laughs) And I get that, right? I resonate with that, okay? My poor wife, this weekend I've been gone, I don't think she's slept yet since I left Friday morning. I was talking with her this morning, and she was giving me the sort of the play-by-play from the night before. So, you know... The fact of the matter is there's days where I don't really want to get up because I hadn't actually been to bed. I don't want to start a day that the last one hadn't even finished yet. Right? And yet, there's a reason to get out of the house. There's a reason to, to go to those children that just kept you up all night and love on them and, and show them God's grace and forgiveness and love for them. It's because our hope is not in this world. Our hope is in the restoration of all things and the fact that we have been made alive in Christ Jesus, those of us that were dead. 
Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and with all your strength. This is the purpose of life. This is the meaning of life. God himself. But Jesus' answer is not complete. You may be wondering, are we going to even get to that before it's time to eat lunch? Yes, we are. So let's turn to verse 31, back in our passage. I know we just kind of went on the whirlwind tour of Scripture. Uh, let's, let's try to center ourselves for a moment back in uh, Mark 12, and we're looking at verse 31 specifically, okay? Remember, he's just said that the Shema is the greatest commandment, but he doesn't stop to take a breath. He pushes on and says, and the second like it is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. Plural. Notice he's actually giving two answers in a sense. But as he says, the second commandment is like the first. They go hand in hand because filling the earth with worshipers is automatically something that goes beyond myself, and it has to do with others. And God calls these others neighbors. In essence, Jesus is saying that in loving God, we do love others. So if we don't love others, maybe we should ask questions about whether or not we love God. Now, if you're like me, you're sitting there thinking, wow, he's meddling now. That, that hurts me when I process it. It convicts me. It's hard to look in the mirror of Scripture sometimes. And I'm right there with you. Let me just tell you. But if we love God, we love others. Our love for God overflows into love for others. And this answers actually another quotation from uh, the Old Testament, from Leviticus. Again, Jesus isn't just making this up, okay? This is actually what the scribes should have been understanding all along that the people of Israel should have been understanding all along. I want to tell you a story about my literal, physical neighborhood neighbor. So if you're in my house and you're facing the street, he's to the left. Okay, and we got this really unique little bend in the road, and the police have told me that that's where people tend to wreck, is right in our front yard, so I'm looking forward to that. Um, it'd be, I mean, it's kind of sarcastic, but I'm also thinking, well, maybe that'll be an opportunity to love on somebody, right? But um, my neighbor's name is buffalo when we first moved in the very first interaction we had was very rough okay uh, my moving truck was still in the driveway we had just cracked the door open you know it was like hour 10 of 18 that day you know it, it, by the way if you're ever in need of conviction about your materialism problem just move um, if you ever need to get to the point where you really depend on God as your literal rest, you should try moving. It's very effective. Anyway, our driveways, uh, Buffalo's driveway and mine, have a shared portion, right? So there, it's, I think it's called an easement in legal terms, you know, where it technically belongs to one, but it's written in the law that and the deed of both properties that the one person agrees to let the other person use two-thirds of their driveway so that they can get their car in too. So basically, he could just block me off because it's actually his property that leads to my driveway. I didn't know all that at the time. I'm just happy to be finally taking stuff out of the truck. So he pulls in next to my truck, and I'm, you know, I'm very one-minded at this point, right? And he says very loudly, don't block my driveway. 
Okay. That really isn't starting off very well. I'd never seen him before. I'd never spoken to him. And that's how he begins our neighbor relationship. Don't block my driveway. So fast forward three weeks from that point, we still haven't had much interaction. And honestly, I'm a bit intimidated by him. I'm just thinking, let's not block his driveway. Let's kind of just stay over here, right? I'm not really sure what to make of my new neighbor. Is he a friend? Is he a foe? Do I need to be worried about him? I'm not really sure. I'm not really trying to find out. I'm on my way to meet with somebody one morning, and my truck dies not 20 feet from my driveway, going the other way, away from Buffalo's house. And I'm out there on the road trying to figure out what's going on. I might as well be trying to come up with a new theory for nuclear fission, basically. I'm not a mechanic, is what I'm trying to say. Uh, I'm in a lot of trouble if it's up to me to fix my truck. And I, I don't know if he picked up on that or, or what, but I look in the rearview mirror, and here comes Buffalo walking down the street towards me. And I'm sitting there in my truck, and I'm thinking, is he going to shoot me? I mean, what is he going to say? Like, what is he doing? Is he going to come taunt me? I have no idea. You see the fear in my heart, right? And just I, thinking very small, um, basically forgetting everything we've been talking about so far this morning, right? Um, I'm just trying to get on with my day. There's somebody I need to go meet with. As it turns out, he spends hours with me, helping me fix my truck. We're, we're hanging out in my driveway. You can't make this stuff up. He calls his mechanic friend. We're all three sitting there. Some of the most interesting conversation I've ever had in my life. Okay. And when I asked him why he'd help me, his real and true, I'm not making this up, answer was, ain't you supposed to love your neighbors? You can imagine I hung my head just a little bit. And I'm thinking, I should have been the one loving you. I just moved to this town to love my neighbors. And my neighbor had to love me. And this is coming from a man who has said about church, I spent most of my life in church and it didn't work. This is coming from a man who told me a story about his aunt buying a church. I don't even know what that means. I don't know how you buy a church. And he wasn't talking about the building. He was talking about the whole shebang. I don't know how that is even coherent. But this is a man who would say, I'm not into that whole thing. Jesus, church, God, the Bible. And yet, he was a living correction to me a living rebuke buffalo he showed me love when i was intimidated by him his rough exterior was enough to keep me away and yet he took his first opportunity to help me you shall love your neighbor as yourself jesus said Buffalo got this right, and honestly, it's become a foundation for a genuine friendship. And just this past Thursday, he called out to me as I was putting out the trash, and he said, Hey, Robbie, let me ask you about your church. I have no idea where that will go with Buffalo, but he wants to know more. 
And of course, you know, loving your neighbor isn't always so practical as installing a new fuel pump in your neighbor's truck. Okay? Uh, in fact, within this idea of neighbor love is this kind of pursuit of unity within the local church that we were just exposed to just a little bit ago. Again, as Justin read Ephesians 4. And if you remember, this is a passage that we've studied together. One of the times that I was able to be with you. We were in Ephesians 4. I'm just going to read it again, uh, just the first three verses. I, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Moving forward, the, the, the call to the humility of Christ in Philippians chapter 2 is based on love. Let's read the first four verses of that chapter, Philippians 2, 1 through 4. Therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind, let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit. But in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Look out. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Now, we tend to read passages like Philippians 2, 1 through 4, and we stop there, and we've had our challenge on humility for the day. Yep, that hits me between the eyes. We're good, right? But let's keep reading. Let's read verses 5 through 8. Let this mind be in you, which is also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. So God has modeled for us in Christ Jesus the ultimate neighbor love in his coming, living, dying, and rising for our sins. But wait, there's more. Verses 9 through 11 brings it home for us. Therefore God also has rightly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those in heaven and those on earth and in those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God. The Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. You may recall yet another passage that we've shared together in one of my times with you, Psalm 67. I'm just going to blow right through it because it's powerful. God, be merciful to us and bless us and cause His face to shine upon us. Selah that your way may be known on earth, your salvation among the nations. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. O let the nations be glad and sing for joy, for you shall judge the people righteously and govern the nations on earth. Selah. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Then the earth shall yield her increase. God, our own God, shall bless us. God shall bless us, and all the ends of the earth shall fear him. You see, these two answers are connected. They're one answer. The meaning of life is God himself. Him worshipped and the earth filled with worshipers. Now back to our passage today. We're about to land the plane, as they say. We find the scribe responding to the answers Jesus has given. 
Verse 32, back in Mark 12, verse 32. So the scribe said to him, Well said, teacher, you have spoken the truth, for there is one God, and there is no other but he, and to love him with all the heart, with all the understanding, with all the soul, and with all the strength. And to love one's neighbor as oneself is more than all the whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. The scribe has recognized that religion, which we will define as... um, something very relevant to us today, but we see here in the form of burnt offerings and sacrifices, is lesser than what Jesus is teaching. It's lesser than God himself. More importantly, the temptation to religion, which we're going to define as the attempt to earn God's favor through behavior, is very real for us today. Let me say that again. The temptation to religion, which is the attempt to earn God's favor through behavior, is very real for us today. And much like the religious authorities of Jesus' day, religion, or having it all together, doing good works for their own sake, saying fancy prayers so everyone knows we are holy, whatever form that takes, these are all attempts to earn favor with God or men, and they fall so short of the Shema, they fall so short of Jesus' answer, of Jesus himself. And Jesus has made this connection for us. Now we know that Christ, his coming, living, dying, and rising, is the key to the story. Okay, And that at the point of Jesus' interaction with the scribe here in Mark 12, these things have not all come to pass. So I want us to turn to one more passage before we end today, and that's John chapter 1, verses, 1 through t- verses 10 through 12. And if you ever really want to know who is Jesus, if that's a question that you or someone you know is struggling with, John chapter 1, read the whole thing. You'll, you'll be helped. We're going to read verses 10 through 12 here. John chapter 1, 10 through 12. He, Jesus, was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe in his name. So when the scribe answered correctly, showing that he understood what Jesus was saying properly, did Jesus say, welcome to the kingdom of God, you are my child? Is that what he said? No. He says in verse 34, you are not far from the kingdom of God. Basically, you're on the right track. The scribe must have been confused. I thought I got the right answer. It's like the Sunday school answer. When you say God, I thought it was right. That that is the right answer, usually. But we know that we must not only rightly understand God, we must receive Him. We must receive Him. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. This is the first commandment. And the second, like it, is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. So I ask you today, have you received him? Have you, as Paul says in Ephesians 2, been made alive in Christ Jesus? You'll know if you have because the Holy Spirit lives in you. God himself lives in you. Your love for God will surpass your love for anything else. 
Your love for God will be such that it makes your love for even your biological family look like hate. It's not hate, but your love for God is so great that it looks like hate in comparison. You'll know because you're no longer dead in sin, but you're alive in Christ. Not without sin, but without condemnation. And that will flow right into sacrificial love for others that will put you on mission for God in your front yard, at the grocery store, in Martinsville, and to the ends of the earth. Let's pray. God, you are. We worship you. We ask you for grace and mercy. We praise you for your work on the cross. And I pray that our hearts would be tuned in such a way that we with our lives answer the question, what is the meaning of life? And that our life song would be a song of worship to you, sung throughout all the earth in such a way that people don't even see us. They see you. God, I pray that you would save any who this morning are dead in their sin, God, that you would work in their heart and make them new in Christ Jesus. God, we thank you for the great hope that we have in you. God, that even when we've not gone to sleep, we can get up and have a day of adoration and devotion and service to you. Even in the darkness that we sometimes experience. There is light. You are our light. I thank you for this church, this local body of believers, what they mean to me personally. God, I pray that they would grow in their love for you, their love for each other, and their love for those who are apart from you. We thank you, God, for your incredible love for us your redeeming love, your restoring love. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen.